You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Penny Chris Etherton, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Hi, this is Dr. Alan Brown, host of Lipid Luminations on ReachMD. Today we're going to talk about the prevalence and diagnosis as well as screening for the disease familial hypercholesterolemia. I'm very pleased to have our guest, Dr. Paul Hopkins, who's a professor of internal medicine, adjunct professor of foods and nutrition, and co-director of cardiovascular genetics, as well as the director of the cardiovascular disease prevention clinic at the University of Utah. Paul, thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview on Lipid Luminations. It's my pleasure. So as you know, we've tried to do a series on this uh, disorder of familial hypercholesterolemia. It's often not diagnosed, even though a physician may suddenly see a patient with a cholesterol of 300 and panic. These are usually the panic calls where they want someone seen immediately because they have such a high cholesterol. So I'm going to ask you to put a little more shape around the disorder for the average physician. How do you make the diagnosis? What are the genetic causes? And a little bit about the prevalence of the disorder. Sounds good. Let's start by a definition of familial hypercholesterolemia and uh, a little bit about the genetics. Well, the definition can be based on just the LDL cholesterol. We usually like to be a little more complete than that, so we want to see evidence for a dominantly inherited condition that results in very high LDL, usually about double the level of uh, unaffected people or family members that don't have the gene. If I were going to ask you on average, where should the physician start thinking about this disorder in terms of the lipid profile? What would be the clinical cues in terms of the, the labs and the physical findings? Well, I primarily look at LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol is the 95th percentile for the population. Usually, they're quite a bit higher than that. So kids are surprising, you know, about 130 milligrams per deciliter for LDL is about the 95th percentile for people under 20. We really start thinking about FH, as we call it, when the levels are above approximately 160 for kids and then about 190 for 20-year-olds and usually above 220 for adults. But uh, anywhere above 190, I start raising the question that it might be familial hypercholesterolemia. And in general, these people have normal triglycerides, correct, with maybe slightly low HDLs? Yes. They can have normal triglycerides, but if the triglycerides are high, it used to be a mistake, I think, that people would jump immediately to the notion of familial combined hyperlipidemia. They even used to say severe familial combined when the LDL was quite high. But it really doesn't matter a whole lot what the triglycerides are. If the LDL are truly in the range of FH, we would consider it FH. So that's interesting. I, I know that I've had patients with metabolic syndrome on top of FH, and I think the diagnosis has been confused because the triglycerides were elevated. Is there anything about FH from a pathophysiologic basis that would cause the high triglycerides, or is this usually the combination of other diseases superimposed on the FH when you see triglyceride elevation? Well, the triglycerides 
there's a couple things. We, we've got one pedigree that we've published where a mixed pattern is apparent. Triglycerides even in the 300s in some family members with no other apparent genetic problem other than a defect in the LDL receptor and why that particular family seemed to show uh, that pattern we don't know, but we clearly showed it was an LDL receptor problem, so not what people had called uh, familial combined in the past. Another cause, uh, like you say, metabolic syndrome, probably the most common cause. People with FH can be overweight and have all the metabolic consequences of being overweight, including high triglycerides and low HDL. Those tend to not be real high triglycerides. And then less commonly recognized, because most people don't have the luxury of having ultracentrifuge lipids at uh, their fingertips, but if you do have them, and people have looked at this for some time, you can have superimposed on FH, a type 3 hyperlipidemia, which is a remnant removal disease. And uh, it appears that it only takes a single ApoE2 gene or allele to kick uh, a lot of people with FH into that a type 3 pattern superimposed on FH. So that's interesting. So instead of having to have uh, E2, E2, they can just have a single E2 gene and have delayed clearance of their remnants, which theoretically would also be being cleared by the LDL receptor, right? Exactly. So the E2 allele doesn't interact as well with the uh, LDL receptor, so you add the stress of the LDL receptor being bad and you get a lot of remnants collecting. In fact, ApoE22 genotype for ApoE, almost all of the FH patients have a type 3 pattern superimposed, yet it appears they're not at higher risk, and that may be because not as many LDL get produced. So they get an increase in remnants, but a decrease in LDL, and the overall effect is uh, kind of neutral. Fascinating. Let me, let me ask you about the prevalence of heterozygous FH now. We know that homozygous disease where they get two bad genes for LDL receptor is pretty rare. But I've heard it quoted that what used to be a 1 in 500 incidence for the heterozygous FH may have dropped or increased to 1 in 300. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and why that might be. I've seen that number floating around, but I'm not sure where it came from. I still think the best review of that is uh, in a, a book. It's apparently gone online, the Metabolic and Molecular Basis of Inherited Disease, and then there's a, a very fine chapter on uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. And they go through a whole bunch of population studies and come up with 1 in 500 over and over again. And our studies in Utah pointed to that number, and others have in the U.S., so I, I don't know where 1 in 300 comes from the average level of the cholesterol in the population is dropping, if anything. So population surveys should show up more severe cholesterol elevations than before. I, I don't know. I think 1 in 500 is still a pretty safe bet. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me to discuss the prevalence, the diagnosis, and screening for familial hypercholesterolemia is Dr. Paul Hopkins, professor of internal medicine, adjunct professor of foods and nutrition, 
co-director of cardiovascular genetics and director of the Cardiovascular Disease Prevention Clinic at the University of Utah. So, Paul, if I could ask you to go to the idea of screening. Assuming now that you've helped us make the diagnosis, which would be an LDL over 160 in kids, over 190 in teens, as you said, and over 200 to 220 in adults, being usually a marker for heterozygous FH. Once you have such a patient, what are the screening recommendations? And if they have children, how young should they be tested? There's really a number of ways of making a firm diagnosis of FH. And usually it's the family history and just getting those lipid levels in family members. It's surprising how tough that can be for sometimes most doctor's offices aren't set up to bring families in and invite all the brothers, sisters, whoever you need to. And so sometimes we have to depend on patients calling their relatives, bringing those lipid values to the physician so they can see what the pattern is in the family. Once those are in hand, we can apply published criteria for diagnosing FH. And a simple way of thinking of it, we want to see some evidence for a dominant transmission. So, you know, having one other first-degree relative with similarly elevated LDL usually is enough to be pretty certain it's FH or a child with elevations in that range. Again, pretty certain. And once we make the formal diagnosis of FH, additional members of the family can be diagnosed with somewhat lower LDL criteria still can be quite certain they have FH. So what do you tell a parent then who comes in with the typical FH? And uh, we're going to go to the physical findings before we end the interview. But if you have a parent where you're quite confident of the diagnosis, at what age do you tell them to screen their children? And what are the implications if they find that their child has FH? Yeah, okay. So I should mention one, one circumstance where you can be certain that parent has FH is if They've got the high LDL and a tendon xanthoma, so a nice lump in the Achilles tendon that, as you rub your fingers up and down, so that parent would have FH. And to decide, you know, how young to bring kids in, as young as two years old. So you can make the diagnosis earlier than that, but we don't do anything about it. So we suggest about age two. And we can even start medications on these kids now. The, the, the recommendations are as early as eight years old, uh, but most of them should be treated probably with a statin by 12. So that puts a bigger push on pediatricians, family physicians, general physicians to get the kids diagnosed early. Let me ask you, do you think there's a differential in the risk for boys versus girls and male or female children? Would you... Uh have a different threshold for at what age you might consider treatment? Well, we used to be very conservative with the girls on treating FH kids. There's good data now that they tolerate the statins just as well as the boys. It does not affect estrogen levels or regular progression through puberty or any of the growth parameters that we can measure. So For those reasons, there's no specific reason to delay treatment, but girls and women on average are at lower risk for coronary disease than men, but the pediatric uh, uh, 
recommendations have really not made a distinction between boys and girls on when to start treatment. Well, obviously, we tell the the men to get treated early and never smoke cigarettes. Any differential in terms of the inherent risk of this disease with smoking when you add that to a, a female patient with FH? Well, it's said that women are inherently a little more, I shouldn't say susceptible, but the relative risk. So smoking is higher in girls uh, or women. As few as four cigarettes a day, there's some data suggesting that doubles the risk or even as much as four times the risk with just a few cigarettes a day. But let's just say it's three or four times in a smoker compared with a non-smoker. We know that the risks, both in men and women, are about 20 times their counterpart in the general population. Now, if we double, triple, quadruple that, now they're at 60 and 80 times. And that sometimes gets through. (laughs) It's usually not too much trouble to get kids not to smoke with this family history because they're often aware of early heart attacks and their relatives, and they don't want to follow suit. So what about the young lady who you've treated, and of course you've counseled not to smoke as you have in the, in the young men, and now she's getting into uh, childbearing age. What do you tell them in terms of their statin therapy, and if they want to get pregnant, for example? Right. So I, I believe all the statin drugs now have an X category rating for pregnancy. It's actually surprisingly weak data on how severe the statins uh, affect the fetal development, but certainly in animals, there is loss of, you know, fetuses and stuff. So we certainly counsel them to stop statin medications about a month at least before they start considering getting pregnant. I personally think they should not be overly concerned if they somehow get pregnant while on a statin. We go ahead and just stop the statin, go ahead with the pregnancy, but we certainly don't want them on statins when they're trying to get pregnant or during their pregnancy. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Paul Hopkins, Professor of Internal Medicine, Adjunct Professor of Foods and Nutrition, Co-Director of Cardiovascular Genetics, and Director of the Cardiovascular Disease Prevention Clinic at the University of Utah for sharing his expertise today on familial hypercholesterolemia. Paul, I really appreciate the information and several clinical pearls that I'm sure our audience will find useful. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.